When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, you should check out the full finance journey at realvision.com slash rvpod to get the full view of what Real Vision is all about. A video on-demand platform you can watch anywhere. Our members get daily videos and analysis, plus access to more than 3,000 videos for beginners and experienced investors alike, and live events online. You'll join the most thoughtful community in finance. More than 300,000 people who trust Real Vision to be the anchor to truth in the financial world. To get started, visit realvision.com slash rvpod. Use the promo code PODCAST10 to get 10% off our essential membership for your first year. Enjoy the show. Good afternoon, folks. This is Andreas Steno speaking to you live the 8th of September. First of all, a warm welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Uh, it's actually a dark and stormy night here in uh, Copenhagen, Denmark, where uh, I'm living. Uh, maybe a uh, warning signal of what is upcoming in Europe this winter. And that is exactly one of the topics that we will discuss this afternoon. But uh, most importantly, we will ask the question whether European central banks have thrown in the towel on inflation. The uh, European Central Bank delivered a 75 basis points hike earlier today. And uh, with me to unpack all of the market actions surrounding the meeting, uh, I have invited not uh, only one, but two great analysts today. So first of all, welcome to our very own Weston Nakamura. How are you, Weston? I'm very well. How are we doing, gentlemen? Good, good. And uh, secondly, also a warm welcome to you, Jared Dillian, um, the editor of the Daily Dirt Nap. It's good to see you. Hey, yeah, great to be here. Thanks. Let's start with uh, Europe, since we had this message from the uh, ECB earlier. Uh, Weston, can you please take us through a bit of the market action today surrounding the European Central Bank meeting? So, yeah, sure. I mean, so normally that's a very straightforward question that I that anyone could just tell you. Here's what happened. Here's what was done. Um, and here's what happened in the market. However, uh, it's a little bit difficult this time because we had as you said, a uh, 75 base point rate hike from the ECB, pretty uh, hawkish. And then in the middle of um, Christine Lagarde's press conference, a very critical one, we have Chairman Powell coming out and talking to the Cato Institute in the middle, overlapping uh, her actual you know, press conference. And so what that did, it actually had an impact on markets. It um, basically kind of stabilized the euro, uh, which was seeing a bit of, you know, I guess you could call it some strength, um, but all in all, you can't really parse out what, you know, you can't really attribute what movement is from which speaker, if at all, right? Um, so uh, either way, though, it seems to me that Chairman Powell coming out in the middle of her press conference, talking very hawkish, nothing that we, you know, nothing new, nothing surprising, but reaffirming all this, um, certainly put a bid under the dollar against the euro. 
Jared, you uh, recently wrote a piece comparing the current sentiment in uh, Europe to the 2011 uh, sovereign crisis. Can you please elaborate a bit on that comparison? How bearish do you find the sentiment to be on Europe right now? Oh, my God. I, it doesn't get any more bearish. There's people like tweeting about mass starvation and like all kinds of crazy stuff. It's nuts. So, you know, I was uh, in 2011, I was still doing the Daily Dirt nap. I had been doing it for a couple of years. And, um, you know, the sovereign debt, European debt crisis happened. And, you know, I remember at the time, you know, Twitter was uh, still pretty new then. But there was, you know, I, I, I had competitors in the newsletter business that were really, really bearish on Europe. And the thesis was that uh, interest rates will continue to go up. The Europe, uh, the Euro would split apart. European union would split apart. And, um, I mean, it was, it was a lot of doomsday stuff. And, you know, at the time I was like, guys, like it's, they're going to figure it out. Like th there's an easy solution here. They're going to monetize that. And, you know, people would say, well, they can't, it's against the rules. I'm like, they're going to change the rules. They're going to monetize the debt. It's the only way out. Um, and it, it's, today is actually very similar. It's different, but it's similar. I mean, obviously, you cannot print your way out of this. I'm not suggesting that the ECB is going to try to monetize its way out of an energy crisis. I don't think that's possible. You cannot print oil. You cannot print natural gas. But it doesn't mean that there's checkmate. There's a lot of things that can be done. You know, I mean, Europe can do a deal with Putin. We can bring in 82 tankers of LNG. We can cap the price of natural gas. But inevitably, what happens in situations like this, where you have all this doom sentiment and all the shorts are piling in, is that the authorities change the rules and crush the speculators. This happens every single time, and it's going to happen again. Weston, if we uh, look at the foreign exchange market today, um, we had a, a swift move lower in the euro versus the dollar right after uh, the press conference started from the ECB. And then, as you mentioned, it started stabilizing. But also, if we look at the dollar versus the Japanese yen, we've reached uh, new high levels above 144. What do you make of the sentiment surrounding the Japanese yen and Japan right now? Yeah, so I was on the daily briefing earlier this week. Uh, on Monday with Maggie, uh, about five big figures lower on dollar yen, and it's a pretty insane move. Um, we're you know nearing 145, and so what I was saying at the time um, on the daily briefing was that this is when the services PMI came out, and you saw this kind of you know V reversal in E minis, and then a slow drift down thereafter uh, intraday. And so what I was saying was that, you know, like the equity indices are not really a good way to, to, to get like a market sentiment read on a piece of data or um, on, you know, a monetary policy, whatever it may be, nor are commodities markets or kind of what Jared was uh, alluding to as well. Um, there's just a, lot, a lot of forces and now potentially, you know, non-economic forces entering the picture and all that. And the bond market obviously is uh, very much so, you know, has the, the fingerprints of central banks um, all over it as well. So foreign exchange markets are kind of the only ones that are the only like, not there's no pure read, but the, the least dirty read uh, asset class, major asset class, uh, to see how global market participants are, you know, digesting a piece of news or data or whatever it may be. And so 
when you saw the ism come out stronger the service ism come out stronger than like a nothing read from e-minis what you did see however was dollar yen surge and what that was basically saying was that you have the markets believing that the fed uh is going to be extremely hawkish the bank of japan is going to remain uh very dovish with their yield curve control um this is when jgp yields uh, and your jgp yield is basically at 25 basis point uh, upper band and so therefore that yield spread widens and therefore dollar yen surges and so that's why foreign exchange markets are sort of a better way to see what the sentiment is on a particular piece of data that was just one example of that and and that just kept on uh rising you saw basically you know the bank of japan stepped in to the markets i mean they're in the markets every day um with their unlimited offer to buy but you saw them increase the amount of competitive um bids for their scheduled pre-scheduled uh jgb buys uh when jgbs were actually yielding a little bit above uh 25 basis point and so but basically they kept the the cap on yields and therefore the yield spread and you know and u.s yields continue to surge and so dollar yen just making you know ever higher highs Jared, you also recently wrote about uh, the timing of rule changes. Uh, you mentioned the uh, changed rules around monetization of uh, local sovereign debt in Europe in 2011. But it's usually during a time of crisis that we get these changes to the rule sets, right? What do you envisage will happen this winter when it comes to the overall rule set for central banks? Uh I'm not really sure. Um, first of all, I don't really, I don't follow the ECB super closely. I follow the Fed a lot, but I don't follow the ECB super closely. Um, you know, it's, I can see, I have a background trading short-term interest rates. I used to trade index arbitrage at Lehman Brothers, uh, which is a short-term interest rate trade. I, you know, early 20 years ago, I, I got, I was watching the Fed very closely and I've been doing this my entire career. And, um, it's a little bit tricky because, uh, you know, I, I mean, as Weston said, there, you know, Powell came out today and just basically reaffirmed everything that's been said over the last couple of weeks. And there's one of my points from a sentiment standpoint is that it's very difficult for the markets to rally until there's some visibility to an end of the interest rate hikes. You know, until Powell says. And he wouldn't, he would never say this explicitly, but he says, Oh, we'll get to four and a half, four seventy-five, and we're done. If we had a hint of that, some kind of closure, then that would be a green light for risk to rally. But the problem is, is that these rate hikes continue to be open-ended and we 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 just have no idea when they're going to end. So, you know, I think initially we thought they would end around three and a half, maybe four, four and a half. And now people are like, are we gonna have five percent Fed funds? So it just gets it gets harder and harder. And I actually, I don't have, I really don't have a, a good feel for when the Fed is going to pivot. Weston, yeah. before I allow you to go, um, I would like you to, to make sort of a live assessment of the central bank reaction functions around the globe. Um, we talked uh, earlier, the two of us, about what's happening uh, with central bank reaction functions right now and whether we're starting to see sort of emergent signals of less hawkish uh what do you make of that discussion right now yeah um well like just uh real quick just following off uh what uh jared just said uh so this is why i've been saying that um you know he's absolutely right that you know we have euro you and i andreas you and i've talked about this before you have uh euro dollar futures implied volatility just surging through the roof 
and you know over the last call it six months to year and that's the same time that yen futures had started to get you know massively shorted because traditional rate traders like jared you can't really you know the, nobody has any idea what the hell the fed's going to do for good reason um and so the trade has now become a divergence trade of dovish uh central banks doj versus a hog central bank uh the fed so not necessarily like fed funds will be at x level you know at x month um but uh yeah in terms of um what you just uh, asked me in terms of like this pos- possible pivot amongst global central banks so i've had this kind of view for the last uh, few months or so um but it seems that it's actually starting to come to fruition and that's this uh idea of like central bank divergence or i guess if you want to put it in uh miss lagarde's sort of phrasing you know a fragmentation if you will so right now the consensus generally is that except for the bank of japan global central banks are on a rate hiking path in a almost like a coordinated manner because everyone's getting hit by inflation something like 40 something central banks have uh hiked rates 75 basis points or more uh year to date and so that's just like the, the there's like a very broad based sort of um hiking cycle but i would say that that's actually, you know, that might have been the case, but that's actually going to start to fray, and you're going to start to see, like, central banks act very independently uh, at this point. And we started to see maybe possible green shoots of that this week with the RBA, the Reserve Bank of Australia, and the Bank of Canada, um, both who were, you know, very early with, and with being hawkish, especially the RBA, um, but also starting to signal maybe not necessarily a pivot, but, you know, the RBA, Philip Lowe, at least, um, Governor Lowe, saying... Things like uh, we're going to pause and see these rate hikes, you know, what 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 they've done or, you know, our lagging sort of uh, effects. What what are they? Let's just take a look at what happens. Bank of Canada as well, you know, kind of become almost consensus that they might be at the sort of the end of their uh, hiking cycle. And so you're starting to see that. And these are these aren't like obscure economies either. Right. Um, and so you might start seeing these like green shoots of, I'm not saying an entire global policy um, pivot, but rather splintering um, within uh, among central banks and then also within central banks, you know, within uh, certain boards and, and so on and so forth. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Should make for an interesting backdrop for foreign exchange markets if you're right, Weston. I'll, I'll allow you a few hours of sleep. So thank you for joining us uh, during the middle of the night at Tokyo time. Thank you, Weston. Thanks so much, gentlemen. And uh, back to you, Jared. I mean, with the volatility seen in the front end of uh, yield curves, both in the US, but now also clearly in Europe, um, do you fancy getting involved in, uh, in the very short end right now, given that volatility? Well, I think if you were going to get involved in any part of the curve, you would get involved in the short end. Um, you know, I don't I, I, I think duration is for sale here. But, um, you know, with twos around three and a half like that's, you know, here's an interesting thing like it, this kind of blows my mind. You know, so for the last 10 years, everybody has been bitching and complaining that they can't get any yield. 
right? They don't like it's zero percent interest in a bank account, and the bond market yields zero one percent, something like that. There's no income. You have all these retirees that can't get any income. Well, now short rates are three and a half percent, and like nobody's taking advantage of it. Like I don't see anything in the news about people say, "Oh, great, now I can get three and a half percent of my cash." whether I do it in Treasury Direct or I do it in SHY or I do it in BIL, like, like everybody's, everybody's spooked about it. Like it's the weirdest thing I've ever seen. I wanted to play a, a soundbite for you today as well, uh, Jared, uh, and it's from a debate between Harris Kupperman and uh, Josh Young uh, in relation to the uh, recent oil bull market, at least the bull market from the first half of the year. Uh, Josh is still very positive on the outlook for energy in general, but uh, also energy stocks. So uh, let's listen to Josh here and uh, get back to the discussion on markets. I think um, I think it's really helpful to have the sector focus to be able to be 100% invested in oil and gas here, because I think it really is the most compelling or one of the most compelling areas to deploy capital. And there isn't the pressure to diversify or to whatever, like we shouldn't be 100% of someone's money, but we're able to take the money that we manage and deploy it into the area that I think is most compelling and where I think there's potential for really um, a really compelling risk-adjusted um, opportunity over the next number of years. So, so I really like it. I think there's a really um, compelling space. And, you know, we, we call it bison. Bison's the only animal that faces into the storm and it gets through it. And it was kind of sticky at first, but then after 2020, it felt like we had gone through, um, you know, Forrest Gump, his storm, where like all the shrimp boats got destroyed and he goes from catching 10 shrimp to catching a boatload of shrimp. So, you know, I think we're still catching the boatloads of shrimp. And um, there's not very many days I wake up and I think, oh man, if only my fund could invest in X, Y, or Z other thing and not more oil and gas. So I think I think it's really compelling here. I think the equities, um, to, to answer your question before about sort of like how to play it, I think the equities are phenomenally mispriced. And, um, you know, I think between some of the services companies and some of the low decline producers and some other sort of special situations that we've been finding, it's just overwhelmingly compelling, really exciting to get to deploy capital into. And I don't think we're close yet to a point where we want to be pulling and, and uh, returning capital. The entire interview with Josh Young is already available at the Real Vision platform for essential subscribers. But uh, back to you, Jared. Um, I can just as well disclaim up front that I am short the energy complex with an arm and a leg right now, simply as I think the demand side is falling apart. And I don't think that we can get any more negative surprises on the supply front. But what do you make of the current sentiment around oil and uh, energy stocks? Uh, I mean, that's that's an insane interview. That's like the most insane thing I've ever heard. I mean, it really it really sounds a lot like uh, like Bitcoin in 2020 to me in terms of sentiment. Uh, I want to put all my money into energy like it sounds like Michael Saylor. So, I mean, so from a, from a sentiment standpoint, it's not. I mean, just, you know, when when I when I talk to people in energy, one of the things I hear from people a lot of people got this trade right. And a lot of people forget I got this trade right. Like, so I got long energy in 2020, shortly before prices went negative, and I wrote it up a decent ways. I actually did pretty well on that. 
a lot of people got it right. When prices went negative, you know, people's instincts were correct. They said, I'm going to buy as much oil, much as much energy stocks as I possibly can. So what's happened is you've had a lot of people that have ridden this the entire way up. And what this is what happens. I call it the low cost basis fallacy, right? If you have a very low cost basis, it means you become insensitive to losses when you have a bunch of realized gains. This happened to a lot of people in Tesla. Right. You somebody who bought ten thousand dollars worth of Tesla in 2012 and they have a million dollars worth today. They say, oh, I can take a 30 percent drawdown. But the problem is a 30 percent drawdown is actually three hundred thousand dollars in absolute terms. It's a huge amount of money. And then people lose that money and they freak out. So I think a lot of people are insensitive to I mean, let's you know, oil is down, you know, up for, at 83 from one hundred and twenty. And, you know, among the people in the energy community, there's no acknowledgement that at a minimum their trade is out of favor. There's no acknowledgement that they got it wrong. They're just as bullish as they were a couple of months ago. I mean, the sentiment is I've never I've actually not even in Bitcoin have I seen an asset that's down 30 percent and people are just as bullish, if not more than when it was up 30 percent higher. If we look at the current supply situation in uh, Europe in relation to to energy, I wanted to show you a few charts um, uh, that I've uh, collected during the day. Uh, the first one being a um, a chart on a, on a fact that you already mentioned: um, eighty-one fully loaded liquid natural gas ships are en route to Europe right now from the U.S. That is a new all-time high, and it's I mean far exceeding uh, former records. So. I guess on the supply side, on, at least on the natural gas front, we could be in for a positive surprise in Europe right now. We should remember that the gas flow from Russia to Germany is zero. So how can you surprise on the downside of a gas flow of zero? <laughs> <That's> a <big laughs> and and um, <laughs> second thing, um, Jared, is that I wanted to show you the most recent updated chart on the uh, European supply of gas from Russia because the gas is still flowing to parts of Eastern Europe and to Turkey via the Turk Stream pipeline. Uh, but I mean, the flows are so small compared to what we usually see in Europe. But still, Germany is able to fill up its own gas storages at a record pace. So the final chart I wanted to show you is the daily injection pace of natural gas into storages in uh, in Germany. And we've never, ever seen a pace like we see today even with the lower natural gas flow from Russia. So I'm personally getting more and more optimistic on the supply side situation in, in Europe. What do you make of the supply side situation in, in the U.S. in comparison to this? Uh, the supply side situation in the U.S. You know, one of the things I hear from the energy bulls is that you, you're not really going to have a pickup in supply over a – you basically need a sustained period of time with increasing CapEx – in order to build capacity, in order to get supplies back up. I, I don't really have the ability to evaluate that argument. You know, uh, I, you know, it, it's, I, in, the, in the beginning of the recession, we are in a recession. In the beginning of the recession, one of the things that I predicted incorrectly was that we would have a, a, a large decrease in consumption due to miles driven and such like that. And we actually, that that never materialized, that never did happen. Uh, you know, I'm more focused on the sentiment aspect of it. 
Yeah, and we, if we look at the sentiment, um, if you follow the CFTC positioning, it, it still seems as if the positioning in the energy complex overall is very long, Jared. So would you still be interested in, in, in being short the energy complex at these price levels now that we've seen retracements from, from levels above 100 in, in the crude oil? So, you know, I've, I've made a lot of strong statements and, you know, I really should, I should back it up. I should back it up with money. I should be short. Um, I did, I did buy puts around 120 in, in, in when oil was 120 in the XLE and I took that off and that was a profitable trade. Um, I, I have strong feelings about the sentiment. I think the sentiment is very long, but, um, I'm not, I'm not comfortable shorting with the charts here. Um, you know, crude is actually on support, uh, bounced a little bit today. It could bounce a little bit more. I don't think it's really the best entry point. You know, I, I mean, for me, just my trading style, I'm, I'm more comfortable entering a short position, you know, at or near the highs rather than after it's already down 30%. That just makes me less comfortable. So I really don't, I don't have any plans to go short here, even though I should just, you know, man up and do it. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. I also think that the risk reward in, in shorting natural gas in, in Europe, if you dare, is uh, is better than the uh, oil trade uh, right now. I wanted to touch upon a topic of interest uh, for a couple of the um, listeners out there already. Uh, I can see questions coming in on that exact topic because it seems as if there is sort of a divergence between what's going on in bond space and what's going on in commodity space right now. We've seen a uh, retracement lower in the oil price and the natural gas price recently, but the long end of the yield curve is still moving upwards in yield terms. What do you make of that divergence, Jared? Any Anything that you've sort of noted in that regards? Well, I think one of the reasons for the divergence is uh, the increased quantitative tightening. Mm. I think that it's partially responsible for it. So if you consider... The fact that we're now doing 92 billion a month in QT, that's 20 billion a week. That's an extra, basically an extra 10 billion a week, which is 2 billion a day, you know, across maturities, like 2 billion is, you know, that's quite a bit, you know, if, I mean, if you're, if you're selling half a billion a day worth of tens, that's, you know, that's going to put pressure on prices. So I think that's one of the reasons for the divergence. Um, I also think I, I, you know, I think that people are reflexively bearish on bonds uh, because of inflation. I'm not a bond bull. You know, it was interesting when we first got to three and a half percent on tens, and there was a big rally to two and a half percent. Two and a half percent was an obvious sale. Um, we're not going to have two and a half percent on tens unless we have a very large recession. So I think that was I think that was mispriced at that point in time. I think. Really, I think 10-year rates should be between three and three and a half. If we look at the current pricing of the Federal Reserve, we've sort of gone from an expected peak 
in the LIBOR rate in say six months from now to now pricing a peak in nine months from now, roughly 10 months from now. Uh, so the tighter for longer narrative is is kind of firming up in the market. But uh, I've noted that you've recently written that if the Fed wants to continue to hike interest rates until inflation is back at 2%, then they will have to go further than um, than what's already being priced in. So what do you make of the Fed reaction function in terms of what's being priced in by markets right now? Yeah, I don't I don't think it's realistic that the Fed would continue to hike until inflation gets to 2% because then Fed funds would be at 500% because we're we're never we're we're never never getting back to 2% inflation not in a decade. It's not going to happen. So, I I I think you have to kind of estimate, you know, at what level of inflation does the Fed get comfortable in taking its foot off the gas? Uh, so we have CPI next week. It's estimated to be 8.1. Let's say it comes in in the high seven, seven, eight, seven, nine. You get a couple of more CPI prints. We get down below seven. I think you, if you get CPI below seven, then, you know, the and by the way, you know, at the beginning of this, the Fed always said we want to see progress on inflation, right? Mm-hmm. Substantial progress on inflation. So I think if they do see progress on inflation and it starts to come down, then you know they can they can actually think about pausing the rate hikes or at least you know paring them back. But um, if if we look at the um, sort of uh, live assessment of the Federal Reserve and also look at what Powell reiterated today, it seems as if they will uh, at least likely continue for for the time being with with interest rate hikes almost on on autopilot since we don't really have that firm signal that inflation is getting back towards two percent. But you're obviously right that we need to watch that inflation report next week. But it kind of leads us back to the question that we asked initially: At what point will central banks throw in the towel on this 2% inflation target because it will be very tricky to get back to 2%, Jared. Yeah, um, I think we're we're closer to the end of the rate hikes in the beginning. That's really all I know. We're in the second half, let's put it that way. Um, and I think as Weston said, some central banks are closer than others. I think he said Canada was pretty close in mm. Australia. Um, so... It's the the other thing is is that you know if the Fed seems to be the most hawkish out of all the G10 central banks. You know there is a limit to the hawkishness. Like if 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 you start getting if you start getting the dollar the DXY up to like I don't you know some crazy level like it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna put a lot of pressure on the economy. You know people call the dollar the wrecking ball. So, I mean, at some point, it just it doesn't make sense. So I think we're closer to the end. Yeah, I would tend to agree with that assessment, but it's kind of tricky to figure out exactly when to start betting on it. And um, that's maybe the final question, because in relation to equity markets, it's obviously important to figure out when or if the Federal Reserve pauses or pivots. Um, so what are, the si- what are the signs that you're looking for to get comfortable in actually betting against the current very negative consensus and sentiment on equities. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is that, you know, a a lot of people will make a statement. They'll say, well, you want to get long risk when the Fed pivots. Well, actually, you want to get long risk before the Fed pivots, because by the time the Fed pivots, it's going to be too late, which makes it really tricky, which is why you have to read sentiment and charts and you have to get ahead of that move before they actually do it. you know, looking at, you know, looking at charts of the S&P or the NASDAQ, 
uh, we're kind of in technical no man's land. I mean, I think we're actually within a range. You know, we, we kind of know the Fed put is around 3,600. That's where Bostic came out and said that the Fed was going to pause and the S&P rallied 700 points. And then we found out that the Fed call was at 4,300. They didn't like stocks up there. So I think that's our range. I think we're kind of between 3,600 and 4,300. Uh, I think I think it's I think it's very difficult to make new lows with sentiment as bad as it is. Um, so I it's, we're just gonna we're gonna flop around until you know until something sets up. And ultimately, we've had a uh, almost a pamphlet of bailout uh, announcements this week from the European politicians. For example, the new prime minister in the UK, Liz Truss, basically utilized her first day in office to announce a huge bailout package of more than 5% of GDP. What do you make of these bailouts in relation to whether to turn more upbeat on the economic sentiment and on equities? Well... I mean, look, you know, I don't, I don't want people to freeze to death. Uh, but having said that, the the energy bailouts are bad economics because what happens is, is that if you cap somebody's energy bill, then it does not force them to economize, and you know, it it allows them to keep consuming energy, and then eventually you'll have shortages, and you'll actually will run out. So that's you know, it's bad economics, but it's from a humanitarian standpoint, it's fantastic. Um, but you know, the sort of this, this narrative that Europe's going to freeze to death is, you know, it's absolutely bonkers because, you know, Europe is just going to do what Liz trusted and, you know, is going to subsidize energy bills or something and it's really going to be fine. So, yeah. Uh, I perfectly agree on the bad economics uh, when it comes to these price caps. But one thing I actually find very positive uh, beneath the surface of all of these bailout packages is that they've managed to solve the liquidity crisis within the power trading space in Europe. Uh, and I think that's the key reason uh, why electricity prices in futures terms have come down quite a bit since late last week. And I think that's a bit of a, uh, a relief to uh, the European market overall. Uh, Jared, I've made it my trademark to always conclude the daily briefing with a meme. And uh, in relation to the debate we just had on energy bailouts, I need to show you this meme because um, I think this meme is basically uh, spot on when it comes to the effect of an energy bailout. It feels good, uh, but you're obviously just kicking the supply issue down the road. Um, and this is exactly what I'm trying to showcase with this meme. Jared, any final comments for the uh, audience in relation to um, to the market action over the coming weeks or two? Uh, I mean, if I had any final comments, that would be um, just step away from the keyboard, you know, just get off, get off Twitter. Like it's nuts. Like it's, it, it's, it, there's, there's, uh, I, there's times I, I open up Twitter or I go on the internet and I, I regret it. Like it's the sentiment is really, really bad. So it's, it's going to be okay. Yeah. Hopefully so. Uh, at least I have my fingers crossed here in the epicenter of the energy crisis in Europe. Jared Dillian, it was a huge pleasure to interview you this afternoon. Thanks for joining. Thank you. And uh, to the audience out there, thank you for watching the Real Vision Daily Briefing. My colleagues will be back with more tomorrow. So thanks for watching. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a
a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.